The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space contemplating Ireland through the community. It's created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. A very good evening, everybody. And welcome to the Trinity Longroom Hub. I'm Professor Deirdre Ahern, Director of the Technologies, Law and Society Research Group at the School of Law here in Trinity College, Dublin. On behalf of the School of Law, a very warm welcome to all of you. Um, and just to say, as well, this is being recorded. Um, we had some issues with the live stream, but don't worry, for those who couldn't be here, uh, a recording is being made. For anyone who wants to tweet, please do so and use at TLR Hub and tag also at Schuler Forum. So the Technologies Law and Research Group here brings together researchers working on issues at the intersection of law and technology, including new, emerging and disruptive technologies. This includes research in the areas of information technology law, intellectual property law, health and medical law, uh, bioethics, fintech, data protection and data privacy and security of information. Our researchers are also interested in issues concerning freedom of expression and appropriate regulation of social media, as well as ethical and liability issues raised by particular technologies and their societal impact. The School of Law is co-hosting this evening's event with the Schuler Democracy Forum, which applies Trinity's research in arts and humanities to important questions concerning democracy and the media along with Dr. Elspeth Payne and the Schuler Democracy Forum at Trinity Longham Hub. We, are, we hugely welcome this valuable opportunity to provide a forum to discuss important issues concerning the accountability of social media platforms. Before I make some introductions, I'd like to particularly thank my colleague um, at the law school, Professor Owen O'Dell, and the Trinity Longham Hub for their work in making this event happen. We are hugely excited to welcome Francis Hogan this evening. Thank you for inviting me. Francis worked on ranking algorithms at Google, Pinterest, Yelp, and Facebook, and is a specialist in algorithmic product management. She was recruited to Facebook to be the lead product manager on the civic misinformation team, which dealt with issues relating to democracy and misinformation, and she later worked on counter-espionage. During her time at Facebook, Frances became increasingly alarmed by the choices the company was making, in particularly concerning what she saw as the prioritisation of profit over public safety and risk to human life. As a last resort and at great personal risk, Frances made the extremely courageous decision to blow the whistle on Facebook in 2021. The initial reporting on this was done by the Wall Street Journal in a series of reports known as the Facebook Files. Francis has filed a series of complaints with the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission in the US, on a range of uh, issues relating to Meta, which is uh, Facebook's parent company, alleging that it has misled both the public and investors on a range of issues. The complaints alleged that the platform has misled about its role in relation to the mob attack that took place last January on the Capitol building in Washington, D.C. Her complaints also raised concerns in relation to inadequate uh, hate speech removal, the impact of Facebook's services on teens, 
and the use of the platform for human trafficking, to name but a few of the issues. Since making the extremely brave decision to go public, Francis has testified before the US Congress, the European Parliament, and has engaged with policymakers and lawmakers internationally on how best to address the negative externalities of online platforms. Indeed, just last month she was in Ireland to meet with the Joint Arrakis Committee on Tourism, Culture, Arts, Sport and Media. You're very welcome, Francis. Thank you. Francis will be in conversation this evening with Jess Kelly, and then we'll have an opportunity for a Q&A afterwards. Jess Kelly is News Talk's technology correspondent, and, and on News Talk she is the host of Tech Talk on Saturday evenings at 5pm, which focuses on the real-world impact of technology on society. Um, over more than 10 years with News Talk, she has reported from some of the biggest tech conferences around the world including CES in Las Vegas, IFA in Berlin, and Mobile World uh, Congress in Barcelona. Jess is also an experienced MC and has conducted interviews with many high-profile guests, such as former Secretary of Homeland Security, Michael Chertoff, and YouTube megastar, Casey Nesetat. In 2019, Jess was awarded Irish Tatler Woman of the Year Media Award. You're very welcome, Jess. Thank you for having me. And over to you, Jess. Thank you so much. Uh, so that was a fantastic, I suppose, overview of a lot of issues that we're going to get into over the next little while. Um, and I suppose as a tech fan, I want to lay out the context of this conversation in that you're not anti-tech and you're not anti-social media. You clearly see a value in this type of technology because you've worked for so many of the platforms. So can you just give a bit of context to the angle with which you're coming to these issues. It's not from the I hate big tech and it needs to be pulled out, right? Um, I, 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 I sincerely believe that there's an opportunity for us to have social media that we enjoy that is also brings out the best in us. Um, people often tell me, like, are you against social media? And I've, I've at this point in my life worked with four social media companies. You know, I worked, I helped found this search team on Google Plus. I helped build out the machine learning team at Yelp. I was uh, the lead product manager for ranking and composition of home feed at Pinterest, and then I went to Facebook. Um, I really, I see the value that it can create in our people's lives. The thing I question is the current process where conflicts of interest are resolved. And I want to raise the conversation around who gets to decide how those conflicts of interest should be resolved. Because what we have seen is that when Facebook has, and Meta has been allowed to operate in the dark for the last 15 years, you know, it's substantially more closed than other big tech companies, that we see that over and over again, when left to create their own homework, they kept siding on the side of their own profits over decisions that could have advanced public safety. And that's the real conversation we need to be having. How do we resolve those conflicts of interest? And we're absolutely going to delve into that. I suppose, given that we're here at Trinity College, and given that people will be watching this at home, who have lived through the Cambridge Analytica scandal, which was deemed to be a key turning point in Facebook's history. And you know, a lot of people sat up straight and understood for the first time that tech companies can manipulate us. Because although people who are tech savvy knew it, not everybody knew it, and that was the first instance of that. A lot of people at that time, and again, when you highlighted the issues that you've highlighted, 
started to maybe question their own use of these social platforms mm -hmm. and wondered, am I part of the problem by texting my mum and my dad on WhatsApp or am I part of the problem by putting up my photographs on Facebook? Uh, speaking to the students specifically here in Ireland who are very politically aware and engaged, what would you say to them in terms of what is the right thing to do when it comes to engaging in social media when we know that there is good and bad to these platforms? So to be, to be super clear, the way, <clears throat> the way we will move, move forward is good people have to continue working at these large platforms. There are lots of really kind, conscientious, smart people that work at Facebook. The question is around what is the framework of incentives that we as a society place on these companies? Like until the incentives change, the behavior won't change. Um, one of the things I always try to remind people is there, there, there are these little concentric circles of, of agency and, and, and power that we all have. Like we can, yes, we can make choices about our own life and our own usage of these platforms. Remember, when you see something happen, you, you can have conversations with your friends and family about how they interact with these platforms. I had an incredibly awkward conversation with my mother publicly on Facebook um, back in, I think it was like 2018, where she, she said some very colorful things about Republicans and the US Congress. And, and I, I, I told her, I was like, Mom, like, going forward, if you make these comments that are not adding the conversation, right? She, she surfaced how many um, members of Congress had um, pedophile allegations against them. And I was like, Mom, this doesn't advance the conversation. Like, we don't, we don't come to consensus. We don't find common ground by continuing to amplify uh, uh, slanders or like uh, or, or um, conspiracy theories, right? We have to have if we if we want to be able to have conversations, we have to find the issues where, where we can begin to move forward together. Um, we can start at that level, right? That is not a scalable solution, but it is a thing we can do. The next circle out is we can start having conversations on how should we have oversight of these companies, right? Because part of how Facebook got here today was they made lots and lots of small decisions that ended up adding up to a system that gave the most reach to the most extreme ideas. Where political parties said, the choices you have made in designing your product have influenced the positions we even can run because we know what does and doesn't give a solution. And we have to ask ourselves questions around like, okay, well, if, if we know that this, these, these patterns are occurring in these companies when they act in isolation, how do we begin demanding they put more of the public's interests at the table? That might be giving access to academics. That might be having aggregate data, sample data, that we can see the operations of these platforms. But until we have more involvement, we, we can't actually begin putting pressure for change. So there, there have been movements like in the United States, like Stop, Hate, for Profit, where you know the next concentric circle out. You know, how do we put? How do we? How do we? Uh, begin boycotting. How do we? How do we begin enforcing changes in incentives? And because we couldn't see what was happening at these companies, Facebook was able to wave their hands and say, Look. "Turn that one off." Um, we were able to wave their hands and say, uh, "We saw we solved the hate speech problem. You can advertise us again, All right?" So, so we have to take agency in our own lives. That we we can change our own behavior. We can change the behavior of people around us. We can have conversations with friends or employees of these companies, support them if they're struggling. We can begin asking for transparency and a seat at the table for the public. And we can begin actually uh, putting pressure, putting pressure on the business model, putting pressure on the operations of the companies. Because if we don't change, 
we're going to continue seeing things like what happened with the Rohingya in, in Myanmar, what we're seeing right now evolving in Ethiopia, um, with the conflict there, where we should expect the consequences to continue escalating over the next five to ten years. So to bring it back, and again, there's plenty there that I want to delve into, but to bring it back to the example that you gave of you and your mom having a bit of a spat on Facebook, right? For every child who will engage with a parent online and, and challenge them on something or engage with them on something, or maybe it's your friend or your neighbor, there are so many applications of AI and there's so many, so much AI running in the background dictating things that it could feel like a, a losing battle before you even start. So does the act that you take in that instance of challenging your mother just fall on deaf ears really when the AI has so much influence and impact and algorithms have so much uh, impact on the Facebook platforms? So one of the things that's interesting is like what we see on these platforms is not representative of what's happening on these platforms, right? So the way the, the algorithms are designed, the way the products themselves are structured, um, Facebook runs, has run a long series of experiments where you know, they make these little tweaks and they're always looking for what's going to keep you on the platform the longest, what's going to make you come back most often, what, what's going to have you see the most ads. I, I know, it, uh, I think it's one of these things where we have to have line of sight on the idea that we, we can't act at any single level of those circles of influence. We need to continue to press on all of them, right? So you will get an opportunity to see amongst your friends who is going down the rabbit hole the most, right? Because they're likely posting the most and getting the most distribution on Facebook. Having those conversations actually does change things. It changes the speech that your local community is exposed to. At the same time, this is not, an, this is not a problem we solve as individuals. Like, you're totally right. The real problem here is about the systems that give the most reach to the most extreme ideas. And we, we have to think about, like, what is the context where those were made? And so pushing for transparency begins putting a countervailing weight of where, one, they make those little decisions of, like, do we decrease misinformation by 10% at the expense of 0.1% of profit? Right? right now, if we operate in the dark, they're always going to resolve the side of profit. So, so it's something where we have to work on both sides. We, we, can, we can influence our own environment. And we need to make sure that the, the system of incentives Facebook operates under is changing. OK. Mark Zuckerberg has refuted that mm -hmm. they operate that model. That they, that he, I think yeah. his line was something along the lines of this. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't yeah. make sense yeah. from a business point of yeah. view, because their advertisers wouldn't want to be appearing alongside hateful content. Mm -hmm. So that's one aspect of the issue. But then you see that the in the wake of Cambridge Analytica, the FTC fined Facebook $5 billion. Now, that is a bonkers amount of money to any sane person. But this is Facebook. This and is meta. And the stock price went up the next day. But my question is, if fines aren't going to incentivize real change and bring along that transparency that we all thought was going to come in the wake of Cambridge Analytica, it's clear from what you have said that transparency, it may be in one little sliver of the pie, but it's not in the rest of the pie. And what, so what's going to be the incentive to make them sit up and go, okay, well, maybe now we need to cop on and play walk? Well, I think it's important to think about like, what, what actually happened when that fine happened. So, so it's not, Facebook didn't come in there and have any of its operating rules change, right? Like, because they are so profitable, you know, $5 billion felt like a huge fine. But, you know, Facebook's going to do $75 billion of stock buybacks this year, right? So they're literally going to light on fire 
$75 billion. That's what a stock buyback is. Um, and part of the reason the stock price went up was the market was worried that number could have been higher. They were worried they could, Facebook could have um, actually had constraints placed upon it, or that um, their advertising model, like a lot of the things, um, you know, without having a certain level of privacy violations, their advertising model doesn't work, right? So they were, the market was worried actual teeth could have happened. And because we, we thought we were still operating in this kind of frame of reference where, you know, for any reasonable company, a $5 billion fine would be ruinous. You know, the, the government wasn't understanding the level of consequences or like how much the game has shifted. So so I know it doesn't sound satisfying when I'm like, I'm standing on, I'm gonna, I'm gonna die on the hell of transparency, right? It doesn't sound, it doesn't sound compelling. You're like, tell me the magic bullets. Like give me the five points where Facebook has to change. I think the way we got here was that a giant multinational tech company made decisions in isolation, right? Every, there's probably 300 or 400 people in the world at most who have left the depth of expertise that I do at, at these algorithms. And I don't say that to brag. I say it to flag it as a critical civilization level problem, right? When we can only learn about these systems by working at these companies, right? Today, you cannot take a college class. You can't take a graduate class. It teaches you how these systems work at the level of granularity that we need in order to talk about what is the path forward. I can give you a magic bullet list of five or ten things where if we did them tomorrow without looking at content, without censoring people, we would be safer. Like Facebook knows how to do this. They know how to keep us safe without censoring us and they choose not to because the way the system works today is more profitable. But I don't think my giving prescriptions is the solution. Right? The solution is we need to have avenues where we can watch Facebook, right? where we can see what is gaining the most reach and ask questions about like, should the system be operating this way? Because political parties have gone to Facebook and said, we can see moments when you change the algorithm because it shifted what we could say on your platforms. You know, we can't post anymore an agricultural, a white paper on our agricultural policy because it doesn't get distributed anymore. Like, we have to go extreme, or we don't get any eyeballs. We had publishers coming forward and saying, hey, the content we're the most ashamed of is the content that's most successful on your platform. We think your platform had the problem. The problem is the public had never got to see that that was happening until my exposure came out. And so transparency is how we begin changing the feedback cycle, where we can begin exploring these other avenues forward. But until we have more people at the table who understand what's going on, more people who can have opinions, I don't think we're going to get products that reflect society or reflect the diverse needs that the, these products serve. I think it's really interesting, and I know I keep bringing it up, but it is the other key moment in the Facebook story, and that, of course, is Cambridge Analytica. In the wake mm -hmm. of that, I've spoken to so many people from Facebook and Meta, the parent company, who said that you know transparency uh, is there now because users can go in and see what advertisers know about them and so on. Yeah. That is, although it's great and absolutely bring it on, welcome it, it's brilliant. That's not what you're talking about. You're, oh, it's no. so much yeah. deeper than just me, Jess Kelly, clicking in and seeing that I like coffee, so I'm getting coffee brands recommended to me. That's not yeah. it at all. So. I think one of the fundamental problems that brought us to where we are today is that we each individually only see a little tiny people into what the product of Facebook is. So, so there are other tech companies like um, Google. Anyone in the world can download the search results on Google and analyze them and, and begin to understand what are the biases in what Google does or doesn't show us. And people have been writing papers on this for 20 years. 
right? Google actually staffs full-time engineers to write blogs, like engineers who work on search, to answer people's questions and explain how these systems work because they know we're watching them. They know there's an advantage in engaging with the public about these trade-offs because otherwise we're going to still research them and publish them. Twitter has a fire hose. One-tenth of all the tweets are publicly available for anyone to look at and analyze. And there's easily 10,000 researchers in the world that do that. And they call Twitter out when they see influence operations. They, a lot of the influence operations on Facebook are caught with Twitter's public data. And when they look at the account names, they're like, oh, the same account names are on Facebook. The same IP addresses are on Facebook. The fact that we have to use Twitter's transparency for a basic level of safety on Facebook is unacceptable. You know, Facebook has realized, realized a long, long time ago that if each of us individually could only see a little people, we couldn't generalize that there were product problems. And the thing that happened over and over again was activists came forward and said, you have a human trafficking problem. You have a problem with the cartels weaponizing the platform in Mexico to harass like locals to not resist them or to recruit new people or intimidate their current members to not leave these organizations. You have these, these problems with teenage mental health, eating disorders. And Facebook over and over again took advantage of the fact that we each individually can only see a little, a little tiny slice and said, we totally get that's your experience on Facebook, but it's not representative. Like that's an anecdotal problem. And one of the things that made me feel the most confident that I had made the right decision in coming forward was activists have written to me over and over again saying, I have been hitting my head against the wall for years. We're talking five years, 10 years on these kinds of problems. And they've told me over and over again, what you're seeing isn't, isn't real. Like it's not representative. And now I've read the Wall Street Journal. I've read any of these other publications. And I know it was real. And it's amazing when you actually get re-anchored in reality, like when the gaslighting stops, the thing that changes is we begin to fight again. Right? We can actually stand in the light and stand in the truth and demand like the world to be a different thing. And so that's when I talk about transparency, is we need representative data. We need it can be sampled, it can be private privacy conscious. We can put floors, we can say, you have to be seen by 25,000 people before we consider you're not private. There's lots of ways we can do this to be sensitive to privacy. But even having that level of, of data, like being able to see every, if we saw every piece of content on Facebook that got seen by more than half a million people, instantaneously we'd be outraged at what the, comp, the, the system is biased towards today. And Facebook knows this, because when you look at their most viewed content report, they only show you content for the United States Right? And the United States is the country they've invested the most in safety in. And they only show you the top 20 items. And so if we saw the top 1,000 items, or the top 5,000 items, we would be horrified. So that's, that's what I'm talking about. And I know you don't like being prescriptive in terms of that silver bullet, but I can't help but wonder. I'm happy to be prescriptive about what data to ask for. OK, oh, okay we'll get to that in a second. <laughs> but I suppose my question is, if we were to change things in the mo in the morning with your list, your silver bullet list, is it possible to implement that in a meta that is run by the team that has been there oh, since the year dot? Totally. You think so? Um, Would there be I, the buy-in? Would I there be the appetite? I, I don't think there. I don't think there is. Like it's one of these things where um, this is this is actually one of the reasons why um, 
you know, I, I, I'm, I'm an odd technologist in that I'm both an algorithmic specialist and I have an MBA, right? Like in the United States, that's not really like a dual concentration people do. And, and part of the reason I did that was I worked at Google when Google was still very young. Um, and I, I, I don't know if any of you have watched the TV show Silicon Valley. Anyone? Anyone? I can't, I can't watch that show. I watched the, the first half of the first season and I was like, this is too close to a documentary. Like this is, these things that are being played as jokes like rest and vest. Are, are kind of horrific when, when you watch someone get put in a room by themselves for six months on the hope that they'll quit, right? And I got an MBA because I watched the human consequences of people not taking management or organization design seriously. And, and the reality is, like, Facebook has set itself up today where no one is responsible, right? That executives have gone before the US Senate for the European Parliament and said things like, when asked, who is responsible for Instagram kids, for like the, the launch decision. Like, who will get to decide, do we launch, do we not launch? And literally, they'll say over and over again, no, we make these decisions in committees, right? There's some pretty profound cultural changes that have to happen inside of Facebook for Facebook to be able to reorient itself towards maximizing for more kinds of stakeholders. Um, and I, I think Mark Zuckerberg's um, decision to pivot to video games, like pivot to metaverse, when like the allegations were on the level of like children aren't killing themselves because of algorithmic choices, right? Um, I think shows a profound lack of leadership, and I, I do think we need fairly serious um, organizational and personnel changes if we want to be able to have social media that, that we enjoy and good things. The the announcement of uh, and the focus on the metaverse and the name change came pretty much simultaneously to yeah. um, you know when you're reports started gaining a lot of traction and when people were very much uh, interested to see what would happen. I found the, the response from Meta quite interesting. Mm. Have they reached out to you and has there been dialogue in any way, shape or form that's not in a, of a nature that we can't talk about? Yeah. Um, no, I, they haven't reached out. And I, 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 I'm on. Uh, I'm, I'm a Quaker. I'm like a pacifist and very collaborative. Mm -hmm. Like I, I, I would love, I would love to work with Facebook on things like transparency, right? Because like the way we move forward in the world is not by isolating people. Like people change because the costs of changing are less than the costs of staying the same. Mm -hmm. And the way that comes to be is we have to support people. We have to be firm. We can't enable them. But we, but we will get much more from collaborating and being um, supporting people on the path to change than we'll by them by demonizing them. And so, yeah, I would, I would love to work with them, but I've never, they've never reached out. Uh, one thing that I've watched with interest, I said, the first thing I said to Francis today was that it's funny to see her in real life because I've sat through pretty much every committee <laughs> here that she's done online, I've watched them all. And I've been interested to see how the politicians hmm. have been questioning you because even since Cambridge Analytica, I feel that the politicians are much more informed on the issues. Yeah. You know, I don't, I'm not being mean when I say initially, you know, a few years ago when they were talking about cookies, I don't think they fully understood what they were talking or, about or, necessarily. Or my, my favorite question. How do you make money? <laughs> there were certain questions, but I do feel it's become a bit yeah. more informed now. Do you feel that those conversations are constructive and leading to potential change? Or is it just ticking a box totally. saying that we've had a committee hearing and we can yeah. now move on to the next problem? So I, you know, people, so, so I always remind people, fatalism is how they steal our power, right? Like when you give in to fatalism, when you're like, there's no, there's no ability for us to change, that, that is the moment they steal our power, our power to actually 
change, like force a different world to be. Um, one of the things that I've been so heartened by is we need to remember, we need to be, we need to be really kind on ourselves um, in that Facebook took advantage of the fact that we each only saw our own little individual experiences to take advantage of the fact that they got to frame the solution space for a huge amount of time. Like they got to come in there and say, no, 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 the only, the only thing we have to talk about here is freedom of speech. Are you on team freedom of speech, i.e. Facebook? Or are you on team not freedom of speech, team censorship, which is everyone else? When in reality, there was a huge space of solutions that weren't about content, right? That it wasn't about training an AI to take down a thing. It was about what are the product choices that uh, prior, like give primacy to virality or that give um, more distribution to content that is more likely to elicit a reaction. And, and what I find really, really heartening is as I have conversations with, with, with people, with legislators or with regulators, is people aren't aware of how many solutions exist that aren't about content, that are about friction. Things like, let's imagine Alice writes something it lands in her friend Bob's newsfeed. And Bob's like, that's pretty good. And he reshares it. So now it lands in Carol's newsfeed. So that's a friend of a friend of Alice's. And Carol does the same thing. She's like, reshare. It lands in Dan's newsfeed. So now this is beyond friends of friends. If at this point Dan had to copy and paste the content to reshare, so he can say anything he wants. We're not making decisions about what's good and bad here. We're saying you can do whatever you want. We have to make a choice. You have to copy and paste. You can't just need your hit the button because you're now beyond friends of friends. That change has the same impact on disinformation as the entire third-party fact-checking program. And politicians light up when I have conversations with them about this because it gives them a third way. You know, it's not about we have to crack down on what can and can't be said. It's also not we have to tolerate what's going on today. And I want to be really clear, the reason why I'm so adamant on having this conversation and why I go on the road like every other week is these solutions, non-content-based solutions outside of, AI, outside of AI censorship are critical for the most vulnerable people in the world, right? Facebook is the internet for at least a billion people. You know, Facebook went in there and bribed these places and said, hey, if you use Facebook, it'll be free. You won't, you won't pay for data. If you use anything else, you're going to pay for it. And unsurprisingly, when you put a market solution like that in place, you end up excluding the free and open internet because it's more expensive. Solutions that focus on censorship have to be rewritten over and over again, not just for every language. And there are thousands of languages in the world. They have to be rewritten by dialect because what is an ethnic slur, even hundreds of miles away, can be a different thing. Um, when we focus on product choices, we protect people in linguistically diverse places, in places that have languages spoken by small numbers of people. And guess what? The places in the world like Myanmar, which was declared a, a genocide event, I think yesterday? Yeah, the last couple of days. Formerly, the United States said this was a genocide event. Those places often are very linguistically diverse, and they often have languages that are peripheral and not spoken by 100 million people. And so we have to shift the conversation. We can't let Facebook keep framing it as censorship, not censorship. We have to say, no, we deserve to see what's happening when you make these choices. Because we have to begin pulling from your playbook. We have to figure out a, a broader way to work on safety.
But this is what makes me nervous when we just talk, have yeah. this conversation and focus in on things like legislation. Bring in a piece of no. legislation that will fix everything. You know, last year our health service was targeted by a ransomware attack, oh, right? And this puts cybersecurity on the tip of everybody's tongues. And businesses yeah. that had never heard of cybersecurity strategies were looking at it. And the experts that I spoke to said, yes, you can get a cybersecurity solution and sit it on top of your systems that are already there. But if you want it to be impactful, you have to in, put it in the DNA yeah. so that every single strand has this built into its core. And my question is, if we introduce legislation that sits on top of the platform that works as it already works, is that really going to implement change or is it just going to result in more slack risks? Do we need to yeah. get down into the roots and bed it in? Yeah, so I think so. One of the things I want to focus on in the next year or two is all around like what what is a what is the duty of care, like what is the level of expectation that these platforms should be operating at, um, because uh, right now, uh, you know, there's a lot there's a lot of ways that we can change the incentives, mm -hmm. right? So things like establishing, you know, it's one thing for us to say under 13s or under 16s can't be on these platforms. It's an entirely different one where the public has a right to say, hey, you need to articulate what you're actually doing to solve for under 13s. Because Facebook got up in front of the US Senate and said, proudly, proudly, and Dignity Davis said, you know, last year we prevented 600,000 under 13s from signing up. But Facebook also has documents that say, at least for Facebook, I'm sure it's the same for Instagram, there are age cohorts where 20% of 11 year olds were on these platforms. Right? I think that's more than 600,000 people globally. So, so we have to change what is the relationship. Like, so I would say we need to change our relationship with Facebook. And that doesn't mean like we have to opt out. What I'm saying is that right now, we have no formal way to say, we have a right to articulate the problems that we perceive with your platform. And we should have the right where you have to disclose at least to experts. I think we disclose to the general population um, what you're doing to keep us safe. Because right now, the only people who know what Facebook safety systems are, are the bad guys. Because they're constantly penetration testing. They're seeing what will or won't be distributed, and in which like languages. Because Facebook says it supports, I think, now 100 languages. But often for those languages, instead of having 160 safety systems that they might have for English, they'll have three. And we can't have conversations right now about linguistic equity because we don't even know what they do and don't support. So we have to change what are the, the, the like, what does the public have the right to know? Because as long as Facebook can operate in the dark, they're going to keep optimizing for themselves. But where does legislation slot it? Like, is legislation the answer? Or, and I know you don't want to be descriptive, but it can be class action lawsuits also. Like, I think, I think, we, I think likely we will get the thing that will move the fastest. Mm -hmm. is, is that there are now large, in the United States, there are large uh, operations that are, are spending up in the public about this. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's going to be a thing where we're going to, I'm hoping the DSA will pass. I'm hoping Ireland will step up and have a strong enforcement of that. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it's the thing where like, we also need students. We need to start organizing and putting pressure because like, Let's let's take a, let's take a, let's roll back in time a little bit. So I I was reacquainted with the term digital colonialism when I spoke to the French Assembly. You know they they talked about it in terms of digital colonialism. There are these these big tech companies that are extracting tens of millions of dollars from other places. They get no say in these processes and how they take place, but all the costs get unloaded on those same people that are being extracted from. 
when we look at the history of colonialism, the reason we were able to change in those places was things like direct action were possible, right? Like I'm, I'm a pacifist, I'm a Quaker. Putting friction in the system, being sand in the gears is real. But when we start looking at these tech platforms, you know, people in California can go and sit in outside the, the office in Menlo Park. People in Dublin can stop traffic outside the Facebook office. But the people who are dying because of the choices Facebook are making are, are thousands of miles away from Menlo Park, tens of thousands of miles away from Menlo Park. And they have very little leverage. And so the way these things will change is we have to keep making the costs of staying the same higher than the costs of change. And that goes back, I suppose, to your first answer mm -hmm. of this evening of like, what can we all do? What can our young people do? And those circles of moving out and making an impact. Um, you mentioned there about Ireland stepping up. I want, I want to really emphasize this here. Folks, Myanmar was the first major event. Hundreds of thousands of people died because of choices Facebook made. Facebook chose not to have people who spoke the languages that were relevant to the conflict. They made that choice because of economics. Hundreds of thousands of people are dying in Ethiopia. Same, same reasons. You know, Facebook underinvested basic safety systems. They created things that let the most, most extreme content get the most reach. I want to put you in the shoes of your future self, right? How are you going to feel five years from here, now, ten years from now, when there are ethnic violence instances that aren't that aren't a hundred thousand? You know, hundred thousand is a tragedy. But we're talking a million, we're talking multiple millions of people have died. Right? I came forward because I I didn't want to lay I didn't want to lay in bed at night not being able to sleep, knowing I hadn't done what I could have done. And that is the conversation we need to be having now, is what are we doing now to make sure we never see that world? What are conversations and headlines that focus on certain aspects of the disclosures that you've made unhelpful when it comes to looking in comparison to looking at stories like that where people are losing their lives. Obviously, no person suffering at the result of a commercial company or any company for that matter is good enough and it should not be happening. But when thousands upon thousands of people are dying because of a choice that could be made and the wrong one was selected, yeah. we all are culpable if we don't do something, right? I think the question you're trying to ask there is like, why is it the headlines are about teenage mental health? Yeah, rather than, than rather than like you know genocide. Yeah, um, I think it's, it sounds crazy, right? It may, when we see headlines like that, when I talk to you this way, I totally get why it is easier. It, it's hard to have an emotional impact because it sounds impossible, right? Like how can how can something as super like as as um, frivolous as social media how could it kill hundreds of thousands mm -hmm. of people, right? Um, it's really hard to conceptualize. That's why I keep having the conversation over and over again. We're going to figure out what social media we need to produce. I know, ironically, social media. What social media is produced to make sure we educate the largest number of people. It's okay to feel overwhelmed right now. But the way the world will change is we will keep engaging with this and we'll keep exploring what solutions to move forward. And I think that's how we'll get it into the headlines. Like we'll keep figuring out new ways to frame it. You know, um, there's a, a bunch of Rohingya youth right now who are bringing an OECD complaint, mm -hmm. where they say we are living in refugee camps in Bangladesh, and we've been pushed out of our homes, and all we want to do is continue our education. I think part of it also is by rehumanizing and making human scale this conflict. Right now, they're bringing it to Ireland as part as, as an OECD complaint and asking. We just want money for our educations. We don't even want, you know, to be made whole. We just want to have a future. 
and, and I think that's one of the things, bringing attention to those issues and saying, like, hey, let's, let's begin somewhere in terms of talking about how do we heal and, like, what is fair. And I think that begins to bring home, like, what are we actually talking about? Absolutely. Um, I, I know we're going to get to questions in a quick minute, so if you do have questions, maybe just start uh, framing them in your head now and we'll come to those in just a quick minute. Yeah. I want to ask you briefly about the Data Protection Commission here mm -hmm. in Ireland. Um, they have invited you to have a chat with them, meet with them, gain a bit of understanding as to what they do and so on. Has that meeting happened yet? And are you open to meeting with them and having those discussions? It's tomorrow. Oh yeah, we need tomorrow. It's tomorrow. Okay, cool. <laughs> I, 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 uh, my, my schedule is very complicated, I and, I, and I'm learning the art of delegation. Uh -huh. and I'm getting a little bit about it all the time. Okay, awesome. But, um, yeah, I'm, I'm very open to talking to them. I'm, I'm very open to talking to any government around the world that wants to figure out how to change its relationship with Facebook. Yeah. Because because the reality is we have lots of options, and we we have the ability to change, and that's the thing I'm always always reminding. I'm just interested because obviously. Mm -hmm. The fact that um, we have a lot of the big tech companies here in Ireland and the DPC is, you know, it has a huge portfolio, a huge brief in terms of tackling them, but a lot of the fines very often get criticised as not being big enough, yeah. you know, whether it's 15 million, 225 million, yeah. and they're not big numbers when we go back no. to our 5 yeah. billion. Yeah. But I just wonder, or or the seventy-five billion. Let's 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 always frame this. They lit on fire seventy-five billion dollars in stock buybacks last year. That's the number we should focus on. So they have the money. They can do these things. What would you like to see Helen Dixon and her team doing when it comes to their role as Data Protection Commission Ireland? I think it's really really important for Ireland and, and Irish people to remember that you guys are you are a tech superpower. Right, you're a small country, but you have history of standing up for the little guy, of, of, of being mighty and roaring. And, and other than the United States, Ireland has the most opportunity for influencing the actions of these large platforms via uh, legislation, regulation. Because you are the home for these companies around the world. Um, you know, they, have they have options. So remember, um, in, in lots and lots of situations, the polluter pays. Right, like you put horrible things in the water and people drink it, you poison the ground, you poison the air. Almost every other situation, the polluter pays. You know, part of the struggle right now for Ireland is these are incredibly complicated issues, and the tech, the technological specialists who could be advising these people are used to getting paid five hundred thousand dollars, three quarters of a million dollars, a million dollars a year. Right, I walked away from a very generous compensation package when I left Facebook. Um, when you have a situation where only 300 or 400 people in the world really are in-depth experts, and that's a generous number. I've heard people quote it as 200 people. Um, the idea that Ireland should be expected to pay out of its own coffers to have 20, 30 of these specialists is crazy. But remember, other industries, the polluter pays. It could be a thing where Ireland chose to step in and begin putting substantial fines on Facebook. And that could finance the ability to hold them accountable. And so we need to start thinking about what are the levers of change that we have, and just remind them this is their moment to shine. Right? They have the ability to literally change world history. But the question is, are they willing to grab their bravery? Are they willing to claim their agency to impact change? And as we know here in this country, there's a huge amount of change happening in this regard already. There's a lot of, you know, shifts happening bit by bit, I do hope and believe a change will come. Um, if anyone has any questions, feel free to throw your hands up. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Um, oh. <laughs> we have a 
So to me, as a data science student, it was very interesting to hear your suggestion about non-content-based uh, intervention with university copying and pasting rather than sharing. Uh, could you maybe share another example? Sure. And uh, our short question, so Mark Zuckerberg in a recent interview with Lex Friedman said that Facebook had many more surveys in comparison to, let's say, Google. And that speaks against many more what? Many more surveys in regards to the you know effect of the platform on the users, mm -hmm. um, and that, that speaks against the claim that they are motivated solely by profit. So I would be interested in your comment on that. Thank you. Um, so we'll start with the first one, which is around like non-content-based solutions. Some of them are really simple. The things that like Twitter's done. So Twitter requires you to click on a link before you reshare. One of the things, I'm, I'm really excited your data science because because one of the things I think is missing right now is like, let's imagine we want to have a conversation on, should you have to click on a link to reshare, right? Or or should you have to wait 30 seconds after you click on that link to reshare? That question is actually a very complicated one, right? Like you, could, you, you could treat it very simply. So a lot of data science classes are, 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 are treat these decisions as, as very clean. It's like, well, did it reduce misinformation? Do we know it reduced misinformation? What's our level of confidence? So that's kind of the level of a lot of the homework that's given to data science students. But in reality, we should be having a conversation of which populations are impacted when we roll out that feature, right? Part of why Facebook doesn't ship changes like that is there are places in the world where 35% of everything that's seen in the home feed is a reshare. You know, when we require someone to click that link, which populations are impacted and in which ways? We don't, we don't have a lab bench right now for teaching classes at that level of complexity. The only place you get trained to think of these multi-dimensional trade-offs, um, or to think at, 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 at the, not as like, you know, very, you know, basic ship, no ship decisions, is at big tech companies, right? Where you learn to analyze 150 pieces of uh, different dimensions of data cut in hundreds of ways to make a decision. So like one is, I want to build that lab bench. Like if you were a chemistry major, you could take lots of classes all the way from like a high school level to a postdoc level that let you simulate being a chemist. And you blow up stuff, you breathe in stuff you shouldn't breathe in, you get a sense of being a chemist. I, I want to work on building that lab bench in the next year and use like simulated social networks so we can begin to teach more complexity. Because there's, there's other things, it seems like um, when you reshare, should Facebook give you a tool that lets you pick five other or 10 other groups to reshare to? When they shift that change, they increase misinformation by like 25 or 30%. And no one caught it for months. Right? There are these things where we have to teach people how to think about the dynamics of the networks when we assess how to do problems. And, and that's part of why we don't have those conversations today, is people understand the idea of censorship. It's like, did we take down the edit bro from the newspaper? But, but almost no one in our population thinks about like, you know, if we had to wait 15 seconds after we clicked on a link to reshare, what, what, what are all the positive and negative trade-offs of that? We don't, we don't have that training today. Um, the last thing is around this question of investment in research. So uh, the thing you saw over and over again in my disclosures, and I made sure, I made sure to, take, to document all the comments on every white paper I brought out. I wanted you to see that there was consensus inside the company of saying these solutions actually have positive impacts. Like these problems are real and these solutions are real. But that over and over again, like let's let's talk about clicking on a link. If you click on a link to re before you reshare it, people reshare less. They're more intentional. That also decreases the session length. I think there's a really simple question, which is why did Twitter decide to do this and Facebook didn't? 
and says Facebook chose to keep profits over, over the impacts of misinformation. Um, and I am really, really proud that Facebook invests in researching the consequences of its platforms. But if it doesn't act on what it learns, that's unacceptable. And it's not going to act until we change the incentives that it operates under. Uh, we have time for one or two more questions. Maybe Mike is on the way to talk a few more questions. Yeah, we can roll it over. We'll keep going until we get dragged out of the room. I don't know about that. Francis, I'm Liam Herrick from the Irish Council of Civil Liberties, and I just want to thank you for bringing up the Rohingya complaint, uh, which, which we're involved in supporting. Um, I'm really taken by what you said about technological solutions that are not about content, mm -hmm. because just as in the UK, we're still here having a discussion about content regulation going down a rabbit hole about what is yeah, and what's not, yeah. and I think we need to change that. Um, my question is, um, given what you've just said, mm -hmm. that at every key strategic point over the last 10 years when Facebook has had a choice, it knew the solutions but chose profit, um, and I know you, you are somewhat of an optimist of the potential for change within the company, but that's never really been manifested up to now. So we have the DMA, we have the DSA, for the Irish government, what steps do you think it can take from a regulatory perspective that will really hit the, the algorithmic transparency that you're talking about? So I think I think one of the, the really first, like here's a really simple one. Right now, Facebook intentionally doesn't disclose data to academics because of GDPR. A really, really, they, they'll say, oh, we'd love, to, we'd love to show you anything without violating GDPR. Um, I think coming in there and just defining what level, at what point does something stop being private? Like Facebook has done internal surveys and people consider things to not be private uh, once 32 people have seen them, right? 32 people, I'm not, I'm not saying that's where the bar should be put. But I think there is probably a bar where you say like, if something has been seen by more than 10,000 people, quarter of a million people, 100,000 people, there's some line in there, like we can have a conversation on this. At some point it's not private anymore. And if only what Facebook had to do was publish a stream of content that was seen by more than half a million people every day, it says like for the last seven days, the last month, if something got seen by more than half a million people, we're gonna publish a feed so you can see it. And we're gonna tell you whether or not we acted on it. And like how long was it up before something happened to this? That would be really important because right now, there's a huge problem where the systems they claim the, the systems they claim are the solution, AI, doesn't work. Like the, the, the magic means we were sold was, it will take hate speech down, it will take violent images down, it will, whatever it is that we're complaining about, nudity, it will take it down, and it doesn't. And so we should at least be honest about, are the current things they claim are solutions, do they work or not? Because right now, three to five, the, own, the Facebook's own documents say, three to five percent of hate speech gets taken down. Eight percent of graphic violence, which shouldn't be easy, gets taken down. Um, so let's just, one standing truth of these systems don't work. The second is, if they had to publish that feed continuously, like everything that's been seen by more than half a million people in the last month, we're gonna publish it. Very rapidly they would have to figure, they would be like, what are the other levers that we have to reduce the danger in the system? And the reality is, when you show more content from your family and friends, so there's this concept inside of Facebook of connected content and unconnected content. So unconnected content is like uh, my friend John, uh, he is a friend, Jane. 
Jane wrote something and he made a comment on it. I don't know who Jane is. I never asked to see Jane's content. I never wanted to interact with her. But because John made a comment on it, Facebook now says this content is more relevant. Uh, and let's say it scores really highly, right? Now I said before, the algorithms right now have a bias towards extreme content. Facebook's own documents say, even when we have content for you from people you asked to receive it from, we are prioritizing unconnected content over that content. If Facebook had to publish a feed of everything that got seen by more than 100,000 people, 500,000 people, it would start to be like, ooh, what are all the choices we made that led us to this point? Because we would be shocked at what content gets the most distribution. And that's not the content we asked for. It's the content the algorithms thought we were most likely to engage with. OK, we've time for one more question. Um, so Mike's coming back into the room. Um, the guy in the green shirt there. Thank you so much. And if I make the last comment. Uh, oh, for sure. Hi, and thank you again. Uh, so uh, the main thing that I understand you're advocating is transparency. But the question or the thing that I'm a bit concerned about is that this transparency can uh, you know, uh, put the information in the hands of the wrong people as well. I was hearing the talk by Alex Thomas from Stanford. He was saying that Cambridge Analytica was uh, actually a result of Facebook uh, trying to uh, give access yeah. to other companies through yeah, API, yeah. but then you resulted into that thing. So uh, I want to know what's your idea about this concern that uh, it might be that some wrong people might take advantage of this transparency as well. Uh, so the case, of, I think that is a great, I'm really glad you brought that point up. So I want you to all hop in the time machine with me and roll back to when I was but a young data scientist at Google. Um, back in the mid-2000s, we were really excited as, a, as an industry that Facebook was opening up its API and giving access to its data. Totally agree. Um, I think the difference here is that right now, bad guys already know these vulnerabilities, right? Like literally the industry is going there and they just constantly, like Russia, for example, Russia has tens of thousands of people who their full-time job is making misinformation. And I guarantee you they know exactly what gets through, to fa through Facebook's vulnerabilities. And do you know who doesn't get to have a conversation about whether or not those holes should get plugged? The good guys, right? So one of the things that, that people disagree with me on sometimes is I'm like, hey, we as the public have the right to know which censorship systems exist, like what, what detectors are currently either pulling content off the system or demoting it. We have the right to know what those are. We have the right to know the efficacy of those systems. So like show us 100 samples, like random samples, at each scoring percentile and tell us where you cut off that line. Because right now, counterterrorism content, so in some languages like certain Arabic dialects, 75% of the counterterrorism content is getting labeled as terrorism content and taken down. And the number one thing that keeps us safe is not drones shooting people in other countries. It's people in those countries saying terrorism is not the solution. But we don't get to have that conversation because we don't get to see the efficacy of these systems. But the bad guys, they sit there and they just throw everything against the wall and they see what sticks. They know exactly where the holes are. And so uh, I, 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 find it, um, I find it dishonest when Facebook says, like, we can't disclose these things because it would make you unsafe. Because Facebook's underinvestment in safety is the thing that is making us unsafe. And they won't change that until they have, they have, they have to stand for it and be accountable. Thank you for your question. If you wanted to make a final remark. So I want to really take like, a tiny step back and remind people, 
it's totally okay for you to opt out of Facebook, out of Instagram, whatever social media you want. But I want to remind you, there are a lot of people in the world who don't get a choice on whether or not to opt out. Right? There's at least a billion people for whom Facebook is the internet. And even if all of the United States and all of Western Europe stepped away from Facebook, they would still continue to have the internet be Facebook. Only now, that, that internet would be even more woefully funded than it is today. Right? Like in the last quarter, I think the number was something like Facebook made on the order of like $55 per person for someone on their platform in the United States. It was on the order of about $15 per person if you were in, in Europe. It was like $5 if you were in Asia. And the rest of the world was like $2, $2.50. There's a real problem where if we don't stand up for the most vulnerable people in the world, we will continue to see horrors that get worse and worse and worse. And it will fall away from our consciousness because as people opt out in Western Europe in the United States, we'll be like, well, this problem's fine here. But we, we have to stand in solidarity with, with the people who are impacted because we have the ability here in Dublin, we have the ability in the United States to be direct agents of change. And so let's begin by actually acknowledging what the problems are, having transparency, seeing how the systems operate, because then we can talk about solutions that haven't been on the table before. Like how do we design these products? What are the consequences of choices that were made? And stop focusing just on content that offends us or on specific outlets that draw our attention and make us angry. So I believe in you guys. I believe in us all. We have a lot of options. And the future can be brighter if we stand together. Thank you so much. So I am lucky enough to be the person that gets to thank you both, um, Jess and Francis, of course, for that fascinating and eye-opening conversation that I think put forward not only the scale of the problem, but also gave us some solutions, um, the different circles of influences and that standing up for, for other people, that agents of change. And I think a message that means we, we can do something and, and not just sit in despair. Um, and I think to go back to that first answer you gave to the very first question, make a social media that is something we can enjoy. And I think that's so important and it brings out the best of us, not the worst. So thank you so much. It's been fascinating. Just to add a few other thanks. Um, thank you also to Deirdre Hearn, who is the chair today, as well as Owen O'Dell from the School of Law in Trinity uh, for helping to organize this event. It was hosted by the Technologies, Law and Society Research Group in the School of Law, Trinity College Dublin, and the Schuler Democracy Forum in the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute, uh, which I'm lucky enough to be the coordinator of. My name is Elspeth Payne, just to add that one back in. Thank you all to the Trinity Long Room Hub team. That's Eve, Katrina, Quiva, Giovanna, Francesca, and Aoife, and to Sean O'Brien in the School of Law for their support of this event. And of course, thank you all for coming and for such engaging questions. Uh, so now we're back in person, which is fantastic. I'd like to ask you to join with me in thanking our guests in the uh, traditional way. Manuscript, book, and print cultures, stamping provenance Languages towards the history of the Time of Year Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities this created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Here's to the next 10 years.